0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willerskin
0: booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Wardard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML, a big show. Uh, and, and really, um, I guess no surprises here. The Bank of Canada announces that it will hold its, uh, its rate steady at 5%. There was chatter. Um, because inflation went up just a tick again uh, last month, that uh, it would probably stay steady. They are talking of lower rates in the United States. However, uh, Canada, just not there yet. Uh, also, uh, you might have heard this yesterday, breaking yesterday, the federal court has found the Emergencies Act for the Freedom Convoy uh, violated the Charter of Rights, not justified or necessary. We'll talk about that more again today. And a new survey out, you know how we like the polling. And, you know, the reflection and and what it says about our fellow Canadians, 70 percent of Canadians do not feel that health care will improve uh, and largely due to the population surge. Um, You know, we remember during the height of the global pandemic, we saw the failures in our much uh, beloved uh, Canadian healthcare system, not as strong as we certainly thought it was until, of course, you need it. And a lot of time and, and money was put into it post-pandemic. And remember the prime minister meeting with the premiers, and and you know what are we going to learn from this? We're going to fix the broken link here. And, you know, there certainly were improvements and it seemed to be moving in the right direction. And then all of a sudden, boom, we've got a population surge in the province and uh, the Ontario Hospital Association saying last week that it is overcrowding uh, emergency rooms. So as a result, 70 percent of Canadians, uh, even after a post-COVID, a post-COVID, I guess, uh, reno reno or refurb, whatever you want to call it, um, that's been pretty much set back by uh the million plus new canadians that have arrived in the country in the last year stressing both the healthcare uh, healthcare system and obviously uh the housing system what else we got oh the city a city report recommends and this is a contentious issue who's going to run the LRT once it is done uh and uh this city report recommends that a private uh contractor run the LRT for at least the first 10 years that's what they've done in KW and it seems to be working for them. So there you go. Uh, that's what's going on. As we take a peek at the show and and what's coming up for us, we're going to bring in Duff Conacher. Uh, he weighs in on uh, Federal Court Justice Richard Mosley's ruling on the liber- uh, Liberal government's use of the Emergencies Act. Now, uh, many in the Liberal Party are pointing to the Commission or the inquiry uh, from Judge Rollo, which you know way back when before we got to this point. And um and and said, "Well, geez, you know, he he said it was justified, so we're going to go with that." Well, the problem is, is that's not a court of law; it's non-binding. It's someone who was appointed by a liberal. The liberals controlled the committee. We remember that, and we also remember uh, a judge the judge that presided over it actually saying. You know, your opinions would be changed if you had all of the information or access to all of the information. And obviously, a court of law does, a federal court of law does, and they have ruled that the use of the Emergencies Act was not justified. So, um, you know, it, it's really odd that you can compare a federal court justice to. Um, you know, a justice who's running a commission on behalf of the government where they're not getting all the information and nothing that they say or do is even binding in a court of law. So um, you really can't compare the two. One's a courtroom. One's a committee of of people approved by the Liberal Party. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, as I mentioned, the Bank of Canada holding its uh, its rate steady at 5%, and um, really uh, the Canadian economy has shifted into a, a state of excess supply. What does that mean? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, great Canadian rocker Robbie Robertson of the band now nominated for an Oscar Uh, after he has passed the original score category for his contributions to Killers of the Flower Moon. So we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on and perhaps what Rush is up to uh, as we hear rumblings and uh, rumors there as well. All right, as well, uh, the retreat for the Liberal Party wrapping up. uh, And where do they go moving forward? We're going to bring in Tim Powers to talk about that. And we were going to bring in, or we did bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor at Carlton Sprott School of Business. Uh, to talk about the student, uh, international student visa situation. And then we got so much talking with the Emergencies Act decision, which came down yesterday. We never got to any of the student visa stuff. So uh, he does have an opinion on that, being a prof at uh, Carleton. So we're going to talk about that as well. And uh, again, we're going to have Leger in their latest polls on uh, how Canadians are feeling in regard to the uh, healthcare system and how confident they are uh moving forward so uh we'll have that discussion also Phil Gersky Uh, President of Borealis, threat and risk consulting, former CISA analyst, going to weigh in on the Freedom Convoy Emergencies Act decision. It was interesting. It was the Justice Minister that brought up what I had just suggested earlier, that uh, Judge Rollo and what they had, uh, uh, the conclusion that he had come to, is what the government is standing by, but it's not really a court of law. Uh, The other issue with Government Affairs Minister... Um, with the affair, uh, government affairs minister was that there was this cache of weapons that were found. They weren't actually at the Freedom Convoy site in Ottawa. They were fel- found at the Coots border uh, crossing into the United States in Alberta. So a lot of different angles, a lot of different distractions here. We'll try to decode it all. Co-founder of Democracy Watch, Duff Conacher, is joining us now. A Federal Court Justice Richard Mosley ruling on the liber- liberal government's use of the Emergencies Act to uh, quell the freedom convoy pros, uh, protests, unreasonable uh, and unjustified. Let's bring in Duff Conacher now, co-founder of, De- uh, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
2: Yes, I am. Thank you.
0: Any Hope surprises you here? Thank you, Duff. Any surprises for you here uh, when you hear this ruling?
2: No, the um, commissioner who headed up the inquiry into the Emergencies Act reached a different conclusion. He said it was reasonable for the government to uh, call, uh, invoke the Emergencies Act. However, he said that uh, a reasonable person could disagree with him, that the facts didn't strongly support the government's case for invoking the act. And, and now we've seen a federal court justice disagree with him and say he didn't think it was justified. That was my position as well uh, with Democracy Watch that um, the government had not shown that there was justification that proper police enforcement could have led to uh, removal of the, the trucker convoy uh, as they did at the borders. Um, but the commissioner in the inquiry disagreed, but this justice agrees with that position. It was It was a violation.
0: Uh, And the the Justice Minister is echoing uh, the same thing, that uh, that inquiry is what they're putting, uh, the eggs that they're putting, uh, the basket they're putting their eggs in. Um, But however, that was an inquiry that was set up by the Liberals, uh, and from what I understand, didn't receive all of the information, and the judge uh, alluded to that, and it's not really binding.
2: No, it's not. Um, And there will be an appeal. Uh, the government's already announced it, of this court ruling and what uh, ultimately likely the Supreme Court of Canada does with uh, this case will determine whether it was reasonable. Um, you know, it's a lot of attention paid to something that's probably only going to happen once every 50 years. Hmm. The last time the the uh, Emergencies Act, as it was called at the time, War Measures Act, was invoked hmm. was in 1970. So this is not uh, the biggest or most important thing in terms of ensuring government accountability for abuses of power. There are weekly abuses of power in terms of excessive secrecy, dishonesty, unethical behavior, uh, if not outright corruption. And uh, we need much more action on those uh, laws, cleaning them up and strengthening enforcement and closing loopholes and putting in place penalties that are almost non-existent for serious wrongdoing. Uh, But in this case, it's going to drag on for a lot longer before we even know, uh, because I think it will go right up to the Supreme Court of Canada and they will have the final word.
0: Uh, Is it a good idea that it is going all the way to the Supreme Court? Does that add clarification or, uh, and and again, answering hopefully some of these questions?
2: Yeah, a lot of people argue over what laws mean when they're passed or, or proposed, And uh, the argument is valid because laws are just vague words on paper. And until a court says this is what it means, in fact, until the Supreme Court says this is what it means, nobody really knows. And so you do have vague words in these conditions that say, uh, if these conditions exist, the government can invoke the Emergencies Act and it is in the public interest to have those conditions clarified for future situations. But again, we have a lot of vague ethics rules political finance rules, lobbying rules, um, all sorts of loopholes in them as well. And we need a lot more attention paid to those loopholes where there are abuses of power weekly, because I really don't think the Emergencies Act will likely be invoked again for another 50 years. So it's a lot of paying a lot of attention, spending a lot of lawyers time on something that is going to only be used uh, once in in any person's lifetime, likely.
0: Especially when it's been as contentious as it has been this time.
2: Yes, exactly. So, you know, we, we, there are abuses of power every week. And those are the abuses we need to stop. We, we don't need to spend a whole bunch of time and resources stopping an abuse of power that happens once every 50 years. Uh,
0: so many elements. Especially, to- especially
2: when it only lasted for nine days. <laughs> it was only invoked for nine days there are abuses of power excessive secrecy dishonesty unethical behavior secret lobbying secret foreign interference all of it currently legal because of loopholes in our laws and it allows for dishonest unethical secretive unrepresentative and wasteful decision making every week by government officials and that's where we need to pay pay attention uh, and everyone should be paying much more attention as opposed to the really excessive amount of attention that this nine-day invocation of the Emergencies Act has received um
0: you know lots of debate over this it lasted 3 weeks many said it should have been cleaned up in the first 3 days and could have easily been done but of course uh, it ended up to be what it was and then the debate on whether the emergency act should have been called uh, some 3 weeks later uh, have we learned anything from this event uh, duff and even you know could it happen again are there are there processes or templates put in place that will stop this from happening again? Have we learned anything there, do you think?
2: Well, the road in front of Parliament Hill is closed now to all traffic. So uh, pretty hard to set up a, a blockade on that road now. Um, impossible, essentially. So, uh, but there's other, there's other road,
0: there's there. roads that are up against it. So do you think that if, yeah, if but something but like this happened are... again, that it could be removed quickly and we wouldn't have the confusion that
2: we did last time? It wouldn't have even been set up. The police forces are now monitoring these kind of plans mm. and um, are stopping people from going into downtowns if there are have, have those kind of plans. Um, happened in Toronto when there was a, 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 an attempt to do the same thing at Queen's Park, the Ontario legislature. The police just essentially said, no, you can't go down those streets. So you're not going to get close to the legislature. And everyone Death went gone. home. Uh, it was a failure of policing. They were able to clear the borders with police using the criminal code, which is an existing law. They could have done the same. They could have prevented it from setting up and removed it. But for the fact that mainly the Ottawa police chief was failing to cooperate with other levels of police, they need to decide who actually regulates that road in front of Parliament Hill and has the authority to stop a protest from setting up and blockading the road for weeks and weeks. That has not been decided. It needs to be decided. But other than that, Again, I don't think this situation is going to happen for another 50 years, and even then the Emergencies Act won't be invoked because hope because police will do their job properly the next time.
0: Dev Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, on uh, the Freedom Convoy and where we are now. <laughs> The Bank of Canada held its policy interest rate steady for the fourth consecutive time, uh, and said that monetary policy discussions have shifted from whether to raise borrowing costs to further, uh, further to how long the bank would wait before lowering them. As the Canadian economy has shifted into a state of excess supply, let's bring in Colin Mang, Assistant Professor, Economics, at McMaster University, and here now, Colin. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. So surprised that this rate was being held steady? Um, I'm thinking not because we did see a slight creep in in inflation last month.
3: Yeah, so I'm not surprised at all. As uh, Tiff Macklin mentioned earlier today, monetary policy is working. Uh, Inflation has come down quite a bit since the first half of last year. Now, it is actually important to understand how the inflation rate's calculated. It's calculated on a year-over-year basis. So uh, when you saw the rate go up to 3.4% in December, that was relative to December 2022. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people don't realize is that December 2022 actually saw a slight dip in prices. And if prices had been steady from November of 2022 to January 2023, The inflation rate would actually only be 2.8% right now. So uh, if you look over the long run, prices are continuing to level off. I think you're going to see this inflation rate really, really start to drop as we get closer to the summer. Why is that? So a lot of the inflation from last year happened in the first half of the year. If you mm-hmm. actually look at the pricing data, by about July, prices leveled off for a lot of goods. If you look at you know, one of the biggest drivers, gasoline, uh, gasoline has gone down four months in a row. So what we're seeing now is that prices are, are really starting to level off and return back to normal. So we just need to work through the next few months when we're still comparing to the high inflation period from the first half of last year. Once we get through that period, uh, things are going to start to look the way they did a few years ago.
0: Are you surprised or are we seeing a change in tone from the Bank of Canada? Uh, Again, even just to mention the attention has shifted from uh, whether we're going to raise them again as to now when they're going to lower them. Are you surprised to hear that change in tone? Their
3: yeah, their tone clearly has changed. I mean, we were looking back in the fall; they were a bit hesitant, saying, yeah. "Okay, you know, we're going to hold steady now." There's a chance that rates could go up, or a chance it could come down. Uh, now, I think it's been you know pretty clear that we've had about five months where prices have started to level off. So as a result, they're now seeing that the end of the road is in sight. Uh, they had forecast that we would have inflation around you know 3% through much of this year. But uh, by the end of this year, you are going to see, I think, inflation back into the range of between 1% and 3%, right where they hope to be, uh, getting very, very close to that 2% target. So I think they do realize at this point, the end is near.
0: Uh, it, it when you change the language this way, Colin, does that change behavior? I mean, you know, will this encourage people to, hey, you know what? I think we got smooth waters ahead. We're going to start spending again.
3: Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple of problems with that. Uh, so first of all, one of the big issues that we're still facing, even though the prices for a lot of goods have actually come down, like gasoline, diesel, and that feeds through to a lot of other things that people buy because transportation costs are lower. But the two things that are still getting more expensive are groceries, which are up a little bit, and housing, which is a big one. And it's still going to be housing over this coming year that I think is going to be the big story, because there's about 3 million households, 3 million families out there who still have to renew their mortgage now that rates are higher. Hopefully, the Bank of Canada does start to cut their rates by the spring, and that'll take a little bit of the pressure off these families who are coming up for renewal, but uh, you are still going to see a large number of families out there who have to renew at higher rates and that's going to put a squeeze on their budgets so i don't think you're going to see all of a sudden people going out there and spending huge i think a lot of families are going to be watching very very carefully and waiting for their mortgage renewals to come up and hopefully the rates do come down a little bit more to help them out
0: are we still uh, really focused on that two percent sweet spot uh you said anywhere between one and three for inflation um, You know, 2.7, 2.9, too high?
3: Yeah, I, in my opinion, I think that's still going to be a little bit too high. So their technical policy is average of 2% and keeping it within the 1% to 3% range. But when you think about the bank's credibility they're going to need to get as close as possible to 2% before they start really cutting rates. Because they're going to want, you know, if you get to, say, 2.7 or 2.9 and call it a day, people aren't going to really believe that they are committed to this average of 2%. I think they're going to have to get really, really close to 2%. And then once they get there, uh, then we can start having rates move much, much lower. And then they can manage
0: it sort of within that 2% range. Is that set in stone Colin? Uh, does that change with time? Can it change with time? Should it
3: uh oh, that's a really good question. So every five years they negotiate with the federal government what the Bank of Canada's policy is going to be. so this has been the policy since uh oh way back they they made the decision back in 1991, 1992, that mm. it would be this two percent and That would be the average, and it would be somewhere between 1% and 3%. And they've just continued to renew that over time through uh, all the governments that we've had. Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, Stephen Harper, now Justin Trudeau. Uh, They've made that commitment uh, to have it in that range. Now, it could change the next time that comes up for renewal. That would be something that they would negotiate with uh, whoever happens to be prime minister and finance minister at the time.
0: How uh, how much does wage growth factor into all of this? It's about 4 uh, to 5% right now. Uh, how does that factor in with the discussion on inflation?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. So as wages continue to go up, that does put a little bit of inflationary pressure in there. But the thing is, right now, wages are kind of just catching up. You know, we've seen inflation right. of 7 8% over the past couple of years, but wage growth has been much slower, between 3 and 5%. So uh, families are still just catching up to the purchasing power that they had before. I think it's still going to be possible to see wage growth continue for a little while without putting too much pressure on inflation, because people are just catching up to what they used to have.
0: Uh, The U.S. was talking this way just prior to Christmas when the Bank of Canada was still playing the cards uh, pretty close to the chest. They were talking in the U.S. about three possible decreases uh, this year, 2024. Now, Uh, do you see that happening or maybe one, two?
3: I I definitely see there's going to be at at least one a really good chance of two, maybe even three Uh, in the United States. They're in a slightly different situation than we are. Uh, one of the big differences between us and them is that down there you can get a mortgage for you know twenty or thirty years, and you lock yeah. in your interest rates. So uh, families down there don't have the same problem that they're coming up for renewals, and that's going to put a squeeze on their budget. Uh, inflation in the United States has come down uh, quite a bit. They're at the same level that we are right now, three point four percent. But given the way things are going in the United States, I think they will see two, uh, good chance of three cuts and. Uh, up here in Canada, the Bank of Canada will be watching that really, really closely. Uh, because we trade so much with the United States, we don't want our interest rates, our monetary policy to be too out of line with theirs. So should we- uh, if they make three cuts, I think there's a really good chance we'll have at least two cuts up here, maybe three as well.
0: Uh, we only we got m- seconds left, Colin, but uh, you you brought up the mortgages in the U.S. and how they have a longer duration than ours. Is that something Canada should pick up on? Should we learn from that?
3: Well the plus side of it is that if you can get a mortgage at low rates you lock in at low rates you know for a very very long time the yeah. downside of it is then you know American families are seeing that right now is that with very very high rates if you have to go out and buy a house you're locking in at very high rates for a right. long time uh, so you know there's pluses and minuses to the system the good thing about our system is if you are buying a house right now at higher rates 3 4 years from now when you're going to renew Rates are going to be much, much lower, and your payments will actually go down. So uh, pluses and minuses to each each method.
0: Colin Mang with us, Assistant Professor Economics, McMaster University, talking about the Bank of Canada rate. Colin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Scott late great Canadian rocker Robbie Robertson of the band now nominated for an Oscar in the original score category for his contributions to killers of the flower moon, uh, the posthumous honor honor for Robertson first after decades of composing music for uh, film to talk more about all of this. Eric Alper, with us, publicist and music commentator here. Now, Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. So uh, he's uh, Robbie Robertson actually did quite a bit of movie music. Uh, Accurate.
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know, not only did he work with Martin Scorsese a lot, um, starting from uh, the last waltz, the music documentary and concert film that Martin directed um, way back in 1976. But then the two have collaborated um, more than a dozen times, including Robbie creating the music for the King of Comedy back in 1982. The Color of Money was back in 1986 and The Irishman. And then he also worked on the music department for the Wolf of Wall Street, Gangs of New York and Casino. And this is actually the very first time that, um, Somebody Not Living has gotten the Oscar nomination since Bernard Herman back in 1976 for working on Taxi Driver, which oh, was wow. a Martin Scorsese movie. So it's been quite a while since a person that is deceased has been nominated in this category.
0: Talk about the relationship between Robbie Robertson and Martin Scorsese. And, and obviously this goes back to the band days.
4: Yeah, it goes back to the band. the last and, and Waltz, yeah. Usually, yeah, it, it, it kind of started off, I'm sure, with a lot of drugs and drinking, like a lot of relationships and music <laughs> and started in the 1970s. But, you know, anybody that's a fan of the band knows it's that one thing that they did really, really well was tell stories and especially using Robbie Robertson's lyrics as the kicking point. I mean, this was a band that essentially sold American music back to America. And mm-hmm. it took four out of the five guys in the band being Canadian in order to do that. He told so many vivid um, moments about American history and kind of, you know, fictional tales about what it was like to be American, especially in the, in the, in the down South and deep South America, that it was kind of, you know, natural to hook up with somebody like Martin who spent his entire life telling stories, but on a more visual aspect of it. So I think they both had that kind of language together where if Martin says to Robbie, can you make this more orange? Robbie would understand what that means. and <laughs> There might be not a lot of people that would.
0: Uh, what would be different or the attraction for Robbie Robertson to be, be doing movie scores? What, what is the creative process for this that, that uh, attracts an artist?
4: I think, you know, when you kind of achieved the pinnacle of your success in music, Mm. and especially during the 70s, when you just didn't think that the music industry was going to get much bigger, meaning that nobody had any idea that the band would still be talked about 45 years later. Mm. Nobody knew that there would be giant outdoor arenas the size of Woodstock having one solo artist like a Taylor Swift or Beyonce. So when the band broke up, it was very natural, I think for somebody like Robbie to figure out what other kind of artistic statements he can make. He can go into painting, he can go into novel writing. Um, but one of the, the the kind of no brainers was to connect with Martin Scorsese and create music um, in a in a world of film that was still considered sexy and mysterious and excitement. You know, this is way before obviously social media where, you know, Robert De Niro and um, Al Pacino and Anne Margaret and Diane Keaton and Meryl Streep were some of the, the the most coolest people on the planet because you only saw them in a darkened room up there on the screen. So there was something still Hollywood like that must have rubbed off on Martin on uh, on Robbie's psyche.
0: Uh, what about the opposite with Martin Scorsese in regard to music? He obviously very much involved with music.
4: He loves music. I mean, yeah. you just have to watch a movie like Goodfellas and know that from everything hmm. from using Jimi Hendrix to Derek and the Dominoes to hmm. current releases, that this was a guy that really listened to the radio and not necessarily for the lyrics all the time, but how that guitar part sounded, um, what it kind of conjured up in somebody's mind. His use of music told as much of a story as the actual words in that script and sometimes even more. So he knew very, very early on that you really didn't have to have um, actors or actresses talking. You could just have, the camera open up into a scene and have a a, a song that you might've thought would mean something else, or it does mean something else. And then all of a sudden you've got a completely different vibe in your mind about what that song means, especially, you know, in Goodfellas using the piano coda of Derek and the Domino's Layla, mm. where it's wordless, but it's still kind of that moment where all those bodies started to become unburied per se without giving up too much of the film.
0: Um Miami Vice and in the air Miami tonight. Vice. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's used oh, it a lot. Still. Yeah. Yep. Eric Elper, music publicist and commentator talking about Robbie Robertson now nominated in the uh, for an Oscar in the original score category for Killers of the Flower Moon. As always Eric, lots of fun. Thanks
4: for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon.
0: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
5: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots to talk to Tim Powers about Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. He is here now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh,
6: Scott, I'm always doing well when I'm talking to you, buddy.
0: <laughs> all right. Before we get into the Emergencies Act and, and the fallout of all of that, what about the cabinet retreat? What are the priorities here? Because all of the, all, because obviously there's so much other stuff going on that the cabinet retreat has kind of been uh, taken off the front page per se. Uh, what is going on there? What are their priorities? What are they talking about?
6: Well, the best line I heard on the cabinet retreat was there hasn't been a full surrender yet. So maybe there are some <laughs> that are feeling that that should happen. And that wasn't from Pierre Polyev. So what is, other than there not being a surrender, what is happening at the cabinet retreat? Well, they are talking about what's happening south of the border, not specifically the New Hampshire primary of yesterday, though. I'm sure that's a, gotten some wind, uh, but more what Canada may look like if they're... Find we find ourselves back with a with a Trump presidency, and you'll know, Scott, that in some uh, quarters, uh, the, the Trudeau government views that as, a, as an opportunity to position themselves domestically. They're talking about immigration. You'll probably talk on Monday a little bit about the quick announcement that was made there. They're actually done the cabinet retreat. They're on their way back to Ottawa, I believe, yeah. now for a caucus retreat. Uh, they were talking about housing uh, and affordability, but but as you say, um, the uh, the court decision yesterday, uh, interest rates today, you know there have been a lot of things that have been popping out uh, that uh, that have taken away from maybe what they were hoping would shape the news agenda.
0: Um, you know, we I read the information in regard to planning for a Donald Trump presidency, yeah. if that does happen. Uh, is this about um, preparing Canada for a Donald Trump presidency, or how does Justin Trudeau best use Donald Trump to his advantage over Pierre Polyev?
6: Now you know what some might say that was. With- Cynical, Scott, but I'm with you. uh, Like, honestly, all
0: this all this crap about (laughs) Donald Trump, it's like, my goodness, we're in Canada.
6: We are. uh, But I think, you know, again, the way the liberals will score themselves, how about defining it this way, is that uh, Trudeau uh, is the one G7 leader, I believe, now the longest serving G7 leader. He has some experience with Trump. They were able to get some things out of Trump, i.e. the uh, the, the Canada-U.S. The free trade agreement. Uh, in in the day, uh, you'll remember all of that. But yeah, it's the political opportunity, and you saw that last week. You see it in almost every major liberal presser these days when they offer comparison to Polio. They involve. Yeah. If they don't invoke Trump's name, they invoke, you know, magma or conservatives in Canada like those in the South. So, yeah, Yeah. but but I think Canadians see that as a little bit too predictable, but that doesn't mean they won't keep using it.
0: Good point. Uh, All right. Uh, The fallout from the Emergencies Act decision obviously, uh, federal court Justice Mosley announced that uh, it was not justified, unreasonable. It was, I believe, the word he used and uh, certainly violated the charter. Fallout from that. Uh, where does that go
6: you know that's really interesting right i i'm i'm here in ottawa you and i talked uh so we really began our relationship uh was during the whole covid times and then of course during during the uh the, the occupation freedom convoy and all of that whatever way you want to describe it you know what it's been re- strangely nothing here in ottawa i mean among the people that I talk to, I think most people have moved past it, though. What does it mean in the bigger political debate? Well, the liberals know it's a problem for them because it plays into the hands of uh of of polyev and others who said that they uh were over you know they they were overusing their powers even though they have a royal commission that said differently and it was used appropriately uh and that Justin Trudeau was limiting the uh the freedoms of Canadians and you know a rallying cry of polyev has been freedom Though one thing noticeable yesterday was Polyev offered a response to it, but didn't do a victory lap because I think he still knows there's some sensitivity around the way he behaved before he was leader of the opposition with this. Uh, And there were polls at the time, as, as your listeners know, that showed Canadians were pretty strongly on side with the government being forceful in the latter days of the Freedom Convoy. Nonetheless, uh, it is still something I suspect the Trudeau government wished didn't go the way it did.
0: Um, we're hearing more and more, um, not only just from the polls and in the in the popularity of the prime minister uh, going south, but uh, another liberal MP, this one speaks up, <laughs> says there should be a leadership I know this race. one,
6: Ken McDonald. He's from my part of the world. I've yeah. known Ken for years, and he's, uh, listen, so uh, there's a whole subcontext to this and some of what's going on in my province, which I won't bore your listeners about. However, uh, the rest of the country doesn't know that. Uh, now, Hamilton tells you you're in on the inside secret. So when you see the headline of uh, Ken McDonald, the liberal MP from Avalon, uh, saying there should be a leadership review, that doesn't help the federal liberals. Uh, nationally, uh, because again, it gets at uh, the competency of the the government. They're being questioned by one of their own. It brings back the question: Will he stay? Will he go? It just makes the liberals look disorganized. I mean, this is not going to happen. Ken is asking for a leadership review. That you know, he thinks the party should have a vote on all of this. That that, that won't happen. Doesn't mean Ken won't ask because uh, he styled. His- himself as a bit of a maverick uh, and that plays well uh, in the riding which he's from and among my people in Newfoundland and Labrador.
0: Uh, if he was going to go, wouldn't he have gone already? Like, when? if if the perfect time uh, to go isn't now, when is the perfect time to go? After his yeah, party's done, too?
6: Well, look, I don't want to overplay the 40th anniversary of the Walk in the Snow, which comes up this February 29th. Um... I, he, you know, he he likes symbolism. I'm not saying he's going to do it. And no, look, only a leader knows when they want to go. I mean, you you know, you can pretty much convince yourself to do anything sometimes. And I think, again, the prime minister and his team, his closest advisors, think the economy's going to improve, that Trump will get elected president, that people will see the real Pierre Polyev as they see him as the, you know, the little punk from parliament. Um, That's a lot of ifs, ands, and buts and wishes, and maybe they still believe all that will happen and he's not ready to say goodbye even though uh, the polls are pretty definitive and there's only ever been one kind of comeback with a party down 15 points in the polls this uh, this time out from re-election that was brian Mulrooney but he was only two years into his mandate and run a very ran a very specific election campaign on free trade
0: tim powers with us chairman summa strategies managing director at abacus data on the world of politics from a canadian perspective tim as always thanks for the time be well take care buddy bye don't go away we're coming right back you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml all right uh we talked uh i guess last week How, uh, the government was, uh, warned a couple of years ago from immigration that, you know, we got to keep population numbers, uh, there. We got to keep an eye on this. We've got to tap the brakes. Uh, the population is growing too quickly. It's going to stress healthcare and, uh, the housing sector as well. And unfortunately that fell on deaf ears and it took until we got to where we are for the government to announce there will be a cap on international student visas. Uh, coming up. It will uh, see a reduction of 35% uh, of admission, 35% less admission rates over the next two years. This cap will last for two years. In Ontario and larger provinces, you can see this going as high as 50. Uh, To talk more about all of this, Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor Sprott School of Business, Carleton University and here now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thank you, Scott. So your thoughts on this cap and why now? Um. Uh, first
7: off, let me just as a preamble, because, you know, we are dealing with a very sensitive topic. Um, I have all my adult life, I have, a, like most Canadians, I strongly support immigration. I continue to strongly support immigration. Mm-hmm. However, that does not mean that that we uh, ha, don't have any caps or any limits on immigration. We have always had caps or limits on immigration. We have an annual amount. And what happened in the last three, four years, and I'm really channeling the minister, the liberal federal minister. Who said that the Liberal government it, it let it get out of control and they so everybody understands big picture we went from three hundred thousand student visas about th- three or four years ago to a million yeah now i don 't think any reasonable person this has nothing to do with political parties or partisanship I don't think any reasonable person would say tripling tripling the student visas in the space of three or four years is is sustainable or reasonable mm-hmm. and so that's the first issue number two um, I, I want to make it very clear. We have to nuance the numbers because it's important. Mm-hmm. I am not trashing the universities, and it's not because I'm a professor. That's not why. I, as you know, am evidence based. When you look at the data, which has been released very nicely by the uh, government of Canada, and has been reported in the Globe and Mail, of the million visas, about three hundred thousand are accounted for by the hundred and one universities in Canada. I argue, based on those numbers, that well, yes, we become Collectively, uh, perhaps a tad over reliant on, uh, on foreign students. We are not the problem. Universities are not the problem. Why do I say that? Because 700,000 are being granted to the colleges. Now, before any of your listeners say, oh, so you're just beating up on Fanshawe and London and George mm-hmm. Brown and Toronto, actually, no, I'm not. The minister it is said on the record repeatedly it's these private for profit colleges. He actually calls them puppy mills in Brampton, in Mississauga, in Vancouver. And this has been studied and, and documented what they're doing. And it's outrageous what they're doing. And in fact, the Globe and Mail has called for them to be shut down immediately. They are, these are private. These are not Algonquin College in Ottawa. This is not Fanshawe. This is not George Brown. This is not the legitimate community colleges in Canada that are doing a great job. These are private-for-profit companies. And what they do is that they set up these, I'll call them fake colleges. And the person in uh, the foreign country pays a lot of money to come in with a student visa, and then they never show up. They have no shows of 70, 80, 90% of the students never show up. Clearly, they're being told, you don't have to show up. Don't worry. The whole thing's a bit of a scam. This gets you into Canada and you can disappear into the general population. Yeah, it becomes so a path to a citizenship. There's gaming this they're gaming our system. And 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 so these these puppy mills or whatever you want to call them, they're the ones that have abused this system unbelievably and they're the ones that should be carrying the entire burden of the reductions not the legitimate community colleges nor the universities i'm not saying that they shouldn't be cut at all i'm just saying that they should fall disproportionately on the people on the these colleges that are gaming the system
0: uh how did this get out of hand can we be surprised
7: um you know there was a huge opportunity to make money i mean that's you know let's yeah. be blunt that, that that's part of it um the and and I I've already said the universities are not to blame, but I'm not going to deny. I'm not in denial of the facts. I'm not trying to tell you that the call co- the universities did not increase. Um and and to be fair, I want to be fair. My university, cause I've got the data. Okay. We have a much lower percentage than most Canadian universities of foreign students. We're about 14%. There's some universities that are 40, 50%. I've been told in a rad that university of Toronto and Queens to name two universities have a very large proportion. These are very good universities by the way, mm-hmm. but they may be have, uh, shall we say become, uh, over dependent on, yeah. on foreign yeah. students. And, um, So I'm not trying to say that we are completely um, innocent. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be changes um, to the the student visas. Yes, they've been overextended. They've been abused. They're too high. The minister's cutting them back. I applaud the liberal government for cutting them back. Probably should be cut back more than 35%. But it also raises the problem of the universities because the universities need that money. And that's why they're doing it. They're not doing this out of altruism. Remember, all the universities in Canada are public, meaning they're not owned by a private company. They're owned by the people of Canada. They're owned by, I don't know. I mean, Carleton University is technically a nonprofit corporation set up by the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. And there's lots of other universities like that. We're not unique. So we're not not a profit-making entity but we don't have enough money to cover our costs. And so a lot of universities have jacked up their uh, tuition, their, their foreign student registration, because they collect roughly 30, $35,000 per foreign student. And so it mm-hmm. contributes massively to the cost structure of the university. So we're really talking about what are we going to do about universities going forward? I argue, and this makes me extremely unpopular with students and my colleagues, we clearly need a fee increase. We've been frozen for several years. I cannot imagine any other industry or a company, private or public, where you have no price increase for four or five or six years, when all your other prices are going up, your wages are going up, your technology is going up, your building operating costs are going up. And we have this, we're living in this, not me, but you know, the government made the decision to freeze tuition fees, which I thought was irresponsible. So now we're facing, the chickens are coming home to roost. So Mm -hmm. the government of Ontario, because remember they regulate the universities, the government of Ontario is our banker, the banker of all the universities in Ontario, the university, ministry of colleges, universities, or whatever they call themselves. They regulate our tuition fees and they give us grants for each student who is a full-time student. So they're going to have to revisit, restructure the the monies given to universities in Ontario because Ontario regulates the Ontario universities. And and so this is going to force, this whole cutback of the student visas is going to force, I believe, the government of Ontario to act, hmm. to step forward. And remember, quite a few of the prob- of the universities in Ontario are already losing money. And I don't think the government of Ontario wants to have another bankruptcy like Laurentian University in Sudbury.
0: Dr. Ian Lee with us, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, on the international student visa cap. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. The new Leger poll. Shows respondents do not have high hopes about improvements to Canada's healthcare system with about 70% saying uh, they don't have confidence that uh, things will improve, which is odd considering after living through a global pandemic when we saw all of the weak links within the Canadian healthcare system, uh, we were determined to fix all of that. And we had premiers meeting with the prime minister and all sorts of uh, apparently progress being made. And it, it certainly did look like that for a while uh and then all of a sudden there were too many people chasing too few services and we seem to be back where we are during a global pandemic Uh, let's bring in steve moss at lege's executive vice president in their vancouver office and here now steve thanks for the time hope you're well thanks scott thanks for having me on the show so steve are you surprised canadians are feeling this way when during a pandemic we said you know we're going to fix this
8: well, you're right. I think we had high expectations that, you know, once we relieved the, the hospital bed shortages coming out of the pandemic, that things would improve. And in fact, no, we hear story after story in the media about the bad experiences people have and the record number of people in the ERs and uh, waiting for services. So in a sense, I'm not surprised, but I'm a little surprised at how drastically the ratings have gone down. So, for example... We have uh, the number of people in the country saying that the healthcare system in their province is excellent or good, only at 28%. 35% say it's fair, and then 37% say it's poor or very poor. And those numbers are about 10 to 12 points worse than what they were just this time last year. So we've seen <clears throat> a significant erosion in a 12-month period. And the fact that we have more people saying that the system is poor and very poor versus the good part is is alarming because the last year was the the opposite. It was a little bit higher on the good side,
0: which is very bizarre, Steve. Considering we were coming out of a pandemic, but clearly people felt optimistic and they saw improvements in it. Are Canadians connecting the dots here that uh, there's a relation to Canada's rapid increase in population?
8: Uh, it is a combination, probably, of increased population, but also aging population and uh, RSV and and different. Uh, rebounds of of the flu that are are taking toll. So uh, it's a number of factors. And when we dig further into the poll, we can see some some dramatic differences across the country as well. We've got uh, folks in Ontario about the middle of the pack. And then you look at uh, Quebec and the Atlantic provinces, and they're off the chart as far as the numbers that say that this system is poor, very poor. And out west, we fare a little bit better than
0: our eastern counterparts. After some improvement after the COVID-19 pandemic, how do we explain this?
8: Well, you know, if, if we look at the reasons people give, and there's a whole host of reasons, we've asked people in one or two words to describe the characteristics of the healthcare system, and here's the types of things that pop up. So, uh, at the top of this long wait, we've got uh, people feeling that the system overall is stressed and that is failing. We've got bureaucracy. We've got inaccessibility, uh, the lack of professionalism. We've got anger and some violence that is even happening in the ERs across the country. So there's no shortage of, of negative words to describe the system. And when we probe a little bit further uh, and we ask what are the reasons behind this shortage, and it's primarily a shortage of nurses and other healthcare professionals and doctors, it, uh, things like poor working conditions, uh, funding cuts, or at least not keep, keeping up to the pace of inflation, um, the fact that the pandemic inspired some retirements and also people leaving the profession, we've got low-pay mm-hmm. bureaucracy, unions, new staff challenges, all, all of that combined to the state that we're in now.
0: Uh, again, it's odd because, we, you know, we remember during the pandemic how frustrate, how uh, anxious we were about all of this, and then we did seem to see some improvement, and then now we've seemed to have gone uh, backwards. Are, are, do you, Do you think Canadians feel that... It's as bad as it was during the pandemic.
8: I think it is. In fact, I think it's even worse. We've got one mm. of the what we call the shocking headlines coming out of this poll is we've got about seventy percent of Canadians who say that they're actually worried about being able to get good medical attention if you or a family member needs it and going into either the ER and healthcare. Seventy percent. I mean that's not a small number. Uh, across the country, and a, f- a few differences by provinces. I said worse in Quebec and Atlantic provinces, but that's a massive number. Imagine that you're worried to pick up the phone and call nine one one because you're you're not sure you're going to get uh, the quality medical attention you need.
0: How would that compare, Steve, to past years? When because we always you know looked at our healthcare system like it was flawless, it was the best in the world until the pandemic hit. What was it like pre pandemic?
8: We we did we we had a sense of pride in Canada about our system we always felt that yeah. things were better, especially in comparison to the U.S. and I, and I think I was on your show, might have been a year ago or a year and a few months ago, where we talked about a comparison between the Canadian yeah. medical system and the and the American, and found that wow, not only are Americans way happier, both you know when they rate the system that they're in, and then the experiences of things like delays or or problems accessing the system. It was really quite dramatic the differences that uh, in a negative way that Canadians felt compared to Americans. At that point, I think all of us, at least here at Leger, realize that wow, this sacred cow of what we thought was the source and pride of, of hmm. being Canadian, in essence of what's being Canadian is being eroded rapidly and we don't we can no longer look to our southern neighbors and, and brag about the differences.
0: Steve Mossop with us, Leger's Executive Vice President of their Vancouver office. New Leger polling shows uh, Canadians do not have high hopes about improvements to Canada's health care system in the near future. Steve, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care.
5: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is
0: Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk 900 CXML as we've been talking about the federal government will appeal the federal court justice richard mosley's ruling on the use of the emergencies act for uh, in response to the freedom convoy uh yesterday coming out and saying that uh it was unreasonable not justified and christine van gain has written in uh, the national post that this will be a uphill climb for this appeal uh, with the Trudeau government, Christine Van guyen is litigation director with the Canadian Constitution Foundation, co-author of the book Pandemic Panic, How Canadian Government Responses to COVID-19 Changed Civil, Liber- uh, Civil Liberties Forever. Christine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great.
5: Thanks for having me on.
0: So why do you think, Christine, this is going to be a long a path to this appeal?
5: Well, these reasons are extensive. They're 190 pages. They're incredibly well-reasoned with Justice Mosley going through the arguments made by each each party and ultimately reaching the conclusion, justified, I think, that the use of the Emergencies Act was unjustified because the threshold, the legal threshold to invoke was not met. There was no national emergency and there was no threat to the security of Canada as that term is defined in the statute. And then he went on to find that the regulations enacted under the uh, Emergencies Act, that was a prohibition on uh, attending a gathering that could lead to a breach of the peace, essentially a prohibition on on protesting, and a uh, regulations that allowed for the freezing of bank accounts. He found that those regulations violated the charter right to freedom of expression and the right to be free from an unreasonable search and seizure, which was the the account freezing.
0: Uh, Will this appeal provide any more clarity to this issue? Will it shed light on anything? Will we learn anything more?
5: No, I think we've learned learned what we needed to to learn. This has been canvassed very, very thoroughly. It was canvassed by the Public Order Emergency Commission, which although it, it concluded that the threshold to invoke the act was met, uh, it It included incredibly detailed testimony. I disagree with the result of the Public Order Emergency Commission, but even the Commissioner, Commissioner Rouleau, said in his in his um, in his report that a reasonable decision decision maker could reach a different conclusion than he did. And the big point of difference between this decision and the Rouleau inquiry is on that definition of threat to the security of Canada. Justice uh, Bosley said there can be only one reasonable interpretation of what that term means because it is defined in the statute, whereas Justice Rouleau accepted this squishy definition of threat to the security of Canada provided by the federal government, which included threats to Canada's economic security. And frankly, that argument is absurd. A threat to Canada's economic security is, is not a part of the threshold, which requires there to be serious violence. And I think your listeners need to think about the consequences of what it would mean if a threat to Canada's economy constituted a national emergency, because it means that the Emergencies Act, which allows new criminal law to be created by the snap of the fingers of the prime minister, that it could be invoked in response to labor strikes, which are designed to obviously cause economic disruption. So, I don't think we're going to learn anything from the appeal. I think the government's going to reiterate their position and this sort of absurd position about what uh, how economic harm could constitute an, a national emergency.
0: Uh, the justice minister is standing behind the Rouleau commission as well saying, you know, we've already been here, done that. But as you pointed out, this was a commission which was put together by the liberals. And from what I understand, even the justice said, I don't have all of the information in order to make an accurate decision. And as you pointed out in your piece, it's not binding. One's a court of law. One is a committee set up by a government.
5: Yeah, so of course it's and and the lawyers are are selected by that um, that that appointment. Yeah. So, I mean, the lawyers who, who cross examined the prime minister. So, so yeah. I think that the the Rouleau inquiry is not binding. It is a useful exercise. It's a, a useful political exercise, and it it definitely gave a unprecedented level of transparency. We saw the sitting prime minister be cross-examined. We at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, our lawyer, cross-examined him. It, you don't see that level of transparency. And, be, and and another benefit of it was that we were able to access a huge number of documents that the government otherwise would not have provided to us. But in the end, I think Commissioner got the got the result wrong. He accepted some arguments by the government that I don't think he should have. Uh, And I think that in the end, it doesn't really matter because it's not binding. It's not a statement of the law, whereas Justice Mosley of the federal court, his decision is a binding statement of the law.
0: How do you think this is resonating with Canadians, Christine? Because many will look at this after the three week period. It was out of hand and something needed to be done. We had to get them out of there. And do you think Canadians are looking more at how they fix this than opposed to the three weeks of how it got to where it was uh, since you know, the beginning of all of this?
5: I, I actually think with the the passage of time, kind of passions have cooled and we've moved away from the, the mentality that I think a lot of Canadians, unfortunately, had during the pandemic, which was this kind of, crack down at any cost we must achieve our goals at any cost no matter what the consequences to our civil liberties and with the passage of time those passions have have faded our, our heads have cooled off and I think a lot of Canadians I've I mean there's been tremendous feedback that we've been receiving uh from lawyers and from members of the public congratulating us on this tremendous victory um so I I think that people now kind of see the Emergencies Act invocation for the abuse that it was.
0: Do you think this, how long do you think this is going to take to come to an end? When will we put this to bed?
5: So typically bringing an appeal is probably going to take about six months. The case will be heard by the federal court of appeal in about six months, Uh, probably another six months for a decision, although it could be longer. This one took about uh, eight or eight and a half months to get a decision and then that's you know then we're a year out so then we're talking 2025 and i think depending on the outcome of the federal court of appeal decision we're going to be in 2025 it might be a new government and you know if if the federal court of appeal upholds the lower court ruling that the invocation was unjustified. I don't think if there's a different government, I think that they unlike is unlikely that they would proceed uh, to bring it to the Supreme Court. But I mean, if it gets rushed, it could make it all the way to the Supreme Court before any possible change of government. Now, I don't want to speculate, I just couldn't hmm. sort of re- read the room. <laughs>
0: Christine Van VanKine with us, litigation director, Canadian Constitution Foundation, on the uh, federal uh, court justice ruling that the Emergencies Act was not needed. Uh, Christine, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. All right, we've been talking about the fact that uh, uh, the federal court justice, Richard Moseley, ruled that the Emergencies Act was unjustified. How does that play out moving forward? Appeal, what have you. Uh, The federal government still saying there was security issues at play. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of the Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst. And here now, Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
9: I am, sir. How are you tonight, Scott?
0: So far, so good. Phil, your thoughts on this? Are you surprised?
9: I'm pleasantly surprised, Scott. You never know what to expect in a court decision, but I am very happy that Justice Mosley came down with this because I argued, well, along, I argued when the act was invoked in 2022 that it was not necessary because there was no threat to national security. CISA said that so quite plainly. And I felt that the invocation of the act was uh, an overreach by the government to deal with a situation that, yes, was inconvenient, but did not. I guess meet the standard, which is very, very uh, slim, by the way, or r- rather narrow, uh, for the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So I uh, know I'm, I'm a very happy Canadian today that the judge came down with this particular ruling.
0: What do you say to those who say, you know, uh, after three weeks we needed to get them out of here? Something had to be done.
9: I have no problem with that. That's that's a policing issue. It's not mm-hmm. a national security issue. So there's reasons, Scott, why we have the Emergencies Act. It is, of course. The new version of it, you remember the old War Measures Act that uh, the current prime minister's father invoked way Mm -hmm. back in 1970 when the FLQ was killing people in Montreal. That was a national security threat. What happened on Parliament Hill and the streets of Ottawa, it was inconvenient. It was a pain in the keister. I understand why people wanted it to end. But you don't use a draconian piece of legislation that suspends civil liberties to deal with something which is really just a law enforcement. Can we blame police? You know me, Scott. I'm a little reluctant. I mean, police try to do the best they can. But while well, I can sympathize with the desire to end the particular uh, demonstrations in the nation's capital, you don't do that by using a law that's not intended to be, is intended to be used only in cases where there are real threats to national security or public safety.
0: Uh, the government is going to appeal this. Will this shed any more light on this? Will it bring any more clarity? Will it help us learn something?
9: Oh, God, who knows? I mean, uh, you know, Scott, the, the reasons why the government can use this piece of legislation is that if there is a threat to national security as defined by CSIS, and CSIS said publicly, we investigated these wankers. Yeah, they were a pain, but they didn't constitute that, that alleged national security threat. I don't know. Are we, are we going to get ministers weighing in? Are we going to get Ottawa citizens weighing in because they felt it was a national security threat? I mean, that's why CSIS exists, right? It's, that's the organization that we pay to investigate these things, not the average person, not the average minister. So we might get some cabinet memos or some emails. I don't know. But at the end of the day, uh, the people who are paid to to protect us from national security threats weighed in quite heavily at, at at the outset. And I can't see anything that would be produced to change my mind on this issue.
0: A uh, couple of different government reactions. Government Affairs Minister LeBlanc said he was concerned about the cachet of weapons that were found. And as I'm doing some research, I'm thinking cachet of weapons. No, that was in Alberta at the Coots us <laughs> border. So how do you link that to the Freedom Convoy when they're half a country
9: apart? 100%, Scott. If there was, in fact, a cachet of, of weapons that was found in Coots, Alberta, that is a, an issue for you know, um, K-Division of the RCMP, which is responsible for the province of Alberta to deal with. You don't invoke a, a measure that goes nationwide to deal with a local situation. So I think they're they're comparing apples and oranges here. And I think they're struggling to find justification because, frankly, I would be embarrassed if I was a government to have a judge say, oh, by the way, guys, you invoked a law that you didn't have the right to do. So I think they're grasping at straws here and trying to, you know, rejustify to Canadians to, as to the move they took back in, in February of 2022,
0: uh, also uh, the justice minister pointing to uh, Justice Rulow's commission and said that this was um, not ne- or sorry, that the Emergencies Act uh, was justified. But then also continued on and said, "Well, I didn't get really all the information, and this is a commission; it's not a court of law, so it's it's not binding anyway." Uh,
9: Scott, I hate to uh, you know um, diss Justice Rulo but that commission was a joke uh you know it came up with findings that were completely contrary to the facts it was a rush job and you know this thing has been decided now by the federal court i i don't know i don't know how you feel about commissions and inquiries scott i think we have them as a bit of a habit here in canada like three a week i think is the current running Uh, i have no respect for that particular commission because they didn't ask the right questions they didn't ask the right witnesses uh, and as a consequence the report that was produced was a whitewash of what happened and it absolves the trudeau government and i don't think that's fair Justice Mosley took a lot longer to go through the, all the information i think it was 8 months in, in in the in the in the uh in his perusal so i would put a lot more faith in what judge mosley said than what justice rullo said in his findings
0: um did we learn anything from this process from an intelligence standpoint did we learn anything about this process from a security standpoint and, and preventing it from happening again let's start with intelligence uh, have have we have we cleared up the issues that have you know you know in, in the passing the buck and the misinformation and where it's going uh, are you confident that this uh, that we've cleaned this up
9: a year later, Scott, we had a government say they didn't bother reading intelligence from CSIS on Chinese interference in our, in our elections, which you and I have talked about ad nauseum. So am I confident that the intelligence issues have been uh, cleared up? No, I'm not. We still have a government that doesn't understand intelligence. There's no intelligence here in co- culture here in Canada. So I don't think that has been been resolved. CSIS did his job. It is due diligence. And it's, it was very similar to investigations I was involved in in counterterrorism. You look at who's who in the zoo. You determine if there's a threat. If there is, you work on it. If not, you move on. They told the government quite plainly, there's no threat here. So Cecil did his job.
0: What about from a security standpoint? Because everybody was arguing, you know, how did uh, how did this get uh, how was this enabled to last for such a period of time? It sort of went from the prime minister to the mayor and then from the mayor to the police chief. And then by, you know, before you know it, it's three weeks later from a security standpoint. And we understand that there was like four different security, whether our police services in that area. Have there been any court? Has there been any coordination at all? of any of these uh, services working together if, in fact, this does happen again.
9: My understanding is that the same situation happened, if you remember back in 2014, Scott, when uh, Nathan Cirillo was killed by a cowardly yep. ISIS wannabe at the yep. National Cenotaph in downtown Ottawa, and then, then the terrorists rushed Parliament Hill. Same problem there, jurisdictional overlap, not sure who's in charge. I was led to believe that they, they did an inquiry into that. They figured things out as to you know who does what, Clearly, that was not the case in 2022. There was overlap. There was some uncertainty as to who controlled what street, that kind of thing. There were things that could have been done better. The problem is you've got multi-jurisdictions. You've got federal jurisdictions, municipal jurisdictions, and provincial jurisdictions in that small uh, space. So yeah, we can definitely do things better from a law enforcement perspective. And that's that's no criticism of law enforcement. It's just a, It's just a, a suggestion that they should, you know, I guess, coordinate better. But Uh, I don't know, Scott, do we ever really learn our lessons with these things? Or are you you not going to have another Hmm. conversation a year from now when something else happens and we're asking ourselves the same thing? Have we learned lessons from our past mistakes?
0: It'll probably be by the end of the week, Phil. Um, So (laughs) this is what happens when a group of truckers comes to town and starts blasting horns. And and everybody agrees it it, it was allowed to dig in and and stay too long. But then you see what's happened with the Hamas-Israeli war and the protests going on. Can we really feel that that, you know, uh, we've got a handle on this stuff when we can when we can let people with
9: horns take over a city? How
0: do we how do we act? How do we act with real, real threats?
9: Yeah, well, and that's a great question. But the other complication here, of course, Scott, is that you're straddling that charter right to protest versus being a pain in in, in the butt when it turns to traffic and Mm -hmm. tying up streets and stuff. And that's not an easy knot to untie at the same time. Luckily, we here in Canada, and and, we've talked in the past, I I wrote a book on the history of terrorism in Canada. It's a rare thing here, thankfully, in our country. Let's hope we're not going to get more of it. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that can be done better. But the bottom line to me is that let your intelligence services dictate where the threats are and don't let politicians muddy the waters by throwing their own two cents worth because they're not qualified to do so.
0: Well said. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst on the fallout of the Emergencies Act. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
9: You too, sir. Talk soon.
0: Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I could not be better. Scott, how about you? I'm doing well. and this story, we just sort of caught on at the end of the show, and uh, we had it on in in the news. And it 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 sort of it doesn't make me feel very comfortable when we hear uh, stories from Sam Cooper and talking about uh, money laundering uh, on in casinos right the way across the country, but starting in British Columbia with you know uh, infiltration by the Chinese Communist Party and laundering money and such. Now we hear. Uh, Fallsview Casino fined 70 grand by Ontario's Alcohol and Gaming Commission for a breach of anti-money laundering rules. Um, they failed to check out funds from a patron, uh, after a player presented $80,000 in $100 bills from a grocery bag, a plastic grocery bag to a table at the venue last April. And here's what kills me. First is, he brings in the person brings in eighty grand in hundred dollar bills in a grocery bag, and nobody. Oh, yeah, that's that's cool. We see that all the time, and they're only fined seventy grand. Surveillance showed that once the money was counted and confirmed, the patron left the table with the casino chips, never even played, left the door. And despite having previously been identified as a high-risk player, money launderer, the casino failed to notify the AGCO and on-site police of this transaction as required. How can we have any confidence in any of this? If people can come in with plastic bags full of money and just throw it down, and then you walk out with the chips, that is a lesson in money laundering 101.
1: Okay, and I don't disagree with you and I'm just catching on to this story in the last few minutes because I didn't catch it till later either like you did. And what you're saying and what this story says and the reason for the fine, okay, I I understand that. What I wonder is what's, and maybe it lays it out, I I tried to open up the Ontario Gaming Control Act to see if I could find this. What's the bar? Like if you come in, $80,000, okay, that's You know, that that seems like a lot. As long
0: as you're under a hundred grand, you're okay.
1: But if you come in with 25,000, but it wasn't in hundred dollar bills, it was just in your account, are they supposed to go and look and say, where did you get 25,000? Because there's lots of people that have 25, not, not me, not you maybe, but lots of people would walk in and say, I got $25,000 to play with. I don't, but I just love to know what the... What the tip offs are supposed to be to to institute a check or what the w- w- just so many questions that come out of this for me what's the what's the low end where you would say sir can you please explain to me where you got this money I don't know and I don't understand and so eighty thousand yeah it's it's like it seems like it's a you know a, a one that raises your eyebrows but there's a there's so many questions now about what are you supposed to do if you're the casino and somebody walks in with a decent amount of money, cash or otherwise? What are you? What
0: is, the, what is expected to find out where that came from? I would think this would be a normal course of business because they're a casino. So they would see similar stuff all of the time. So there must be a very strict protocol about what you can do and what you can't do. And clearly you can't do this. It was supposed to be reported and it wasn't, which is why... They are, they are being fined, but you know, again, you, you can't just like, you can't open up a casino. Like it's a, you, you know, like a lemonade stand. Uh, well, no, clearly, you know, the casino
1: rules are very strict. And again, even as we're talking here, I'm trying to find out where this would even fall. There's 48 different rules or, or not even rules, things within the gaming act. And everything from, you know, registration of gaming assistance to money in lottery schemes to whatever. I, I, I you know what, I'm going to have to read through this because to me, it's not the question so much of is $80,000 in hundred dollar bills in a grocery bag, suspicious. That sure sounds like it. It's where's the bottom end for suspicion? What, what, what would be the <laughs> minimum thing that should make you be suspicious if you're a casino?
0: Yeah, but there must be protocol. There has there, to be that. that has, has to, be to be all written somewhere. I mean, I would has think. to be you know uh, rules of engagement.
1: Or or are you simply saying to the the people, the dealers? Are you simply saying, well, you know, we're going to kind of leave it with you to use your discretion? I, I I don't imagine that discretion is a word that you're going to find in this thing. It it can't be that loose, can
0: it? Again, I remember talking to investigative reporter Sam Cooper, who's done a lot of stuff on this, especially out west in BC, and this is not uncommon for people to come in with bags of money like this and do the exact same thing and go unchallenged. Uh, there were stories about it last year in in British Columbia. So again, it seems that for something like this, something that takes so long to, to incorporate and to bring in, I mean, look at gambling, uh, sports gambling and such. And then when it finally gets here, I mean, you can literally do this. It just seems this would be... You know, it's like somebody walking into a store with a gun, automatically somebody would go, hey, you know what, that's trouble, we should call the police. I'd love to know
1: now, and again, I mean, I'm going to be completely honest, I I don't know, I didn't know a lot about this story before we started talking about it, so I don't know the rules. Now, let's say that this guy... If assuming that there's something untoward going on, we'll make that assumption for the sake they of They are a high
0: risk. They are deemed a sure. high risk. Yeah.
1: Let's say that this person then turns around and hands those $80,000 in chips to person B. So someone else now walks into a casino and as they sit down at a table, they plop down 80,000 in chips. Is that suspicious? Should then the dealer be quickly calling yeah. and saying, where hey, did wait, you get the did chips you, did from? You, did you just check someone here with 80,000 because someone's got $80,000 in chips? Like it, there's so many questions that I don't understand about how these casinos work and what is or isn't. Scott, I don't even understand. I don't even know, honestly, because I don't go to casinos, is someone sitting down with $50,000 in chips, something that never happens? Or is this almost commonplace? I don't know. I
0: don't know. In the private rooms. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's what I wonder. Yeah. Uh, Scott Rodley, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Uh, I don't have 50,000 of chips, by the way, just for the no. record. Just for the no. record. Thank you. <laughs> in potato chips. Uh, anyway. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one from Frank. And uh, uh, just listen carefully. I'll let you decide. When I die, I want to die like my grandfather who died peacefully in his sleep. Not screaming like all the passengers in his car. <laughs> 99, keep right, except to pass.